Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform, a podcast series exploring the unprecedented effort to reform and renew the Catholic Church, which Pope Francis has begun. Over the last 18 months, a synod has been taking place in the Church. It has seen dialogue between church leaders and ordinary Catholics, and discussions taking place across the world about what the future of Catholicism should look like. Now, in the past, Catholics might have been expected to be told what to do by their leaders when it came to matters of faith, but not anymore. The Synod is asking bishops and cardinals, even the Pope, to listen to ordinary believers and try and imagine the new ways of being the Church. As you can imagine, the Synod discussions have thrown up a wide range of topics, from women's ordination, LGBTQ Catholics, the role of lay people, and the whole purpose of Catholicism in the 21st century. In the first season of this podcast, we talked to various people about the Synod, which is still a very new experience to many people. The Synod took a while to get going, and in some places it was simply ignored. But now it is really getting into its stride. And in this second season of the podcast series, we're going to look at the big issues that are being faced by the Synod and talk to the people who are trying to tackle them. In this first episode, I talked to Archbishop Tim Costello. Archbishop Tim is the leader of Perth Archdiocese, the president of the Australian Bishops' Conference, and part of the team preparing the global synod process. As a senior figure in the Australian Catholic Church, he has been deeply involved in synodality and what it means for the church. An expert listener, he is an example of a bishop who seeks to adopt and live the synodal style of the church that Pope Francis has been calling for. It's the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis' election as Bishop of Rome. And in the last 10 years, we've seen an extraordinary number of initiatives and attempts to make the church more missionary, more outward-looking, more involved in dialogue with the world at large. I wanted to know what Archbishop Tim thought the main lessons of the Francis papacy are, and also what he made of the opposition that the Pope has faced which, let's face it, has been pretty relentless. Archbishop Tim, thank you for joining me. Um, I want to ask you about where you see the Synod getting to at this point. We've had a a year or so, or just over a year of of dialogues and meetings, Mm -hmm. but is there still a momentum behind this Synod or are you concerned that perhaps things have slowed down a bit? No, I certainly wouldn't be concerned that things have slowed down. Um, I think the, you know, we had the initial very, very extensive consultation where I think all but two of the bishops' conferences around the world, as I understand it, actually responded uh, to that initial consultation, having had consultations in their own um, uh, parts of the world. So that was a remarkable uh, response, and that's was all put together and out of that came the the document um, enlarged the space of your tent, that Frascati document. Uh, That generated, I think, a lot of interest. Um, And I was not surprised, but uh, it was, 
I guess, gratifying in the sense to see how well it was received around the world. Certainly in Australia, people really found it, those who were interested in it, a very positive and encouraging thing. And I get the sense that that's been true in many parts of the world. Um, people were surprised, I think, that it was so open. Cardinal Greg in particular was very insistent that our job was to reflect back to the church what we had heard. And I think we were very faithful to that in Frascati. I think that is still the process that's going on. So uh, with the continental synods, which are um, synod meetings, which are taking place at the moment, continental assemblies, it's really the same thing. Uh, we had the, if you like, the national consultations, and now the results of that were fed back to the churches at the continental level. So for me, coming from Australia, it was Oceania. Um, and it was really the same thing. And again, it was very clear to us that our main task was to ensure that the document that the bishops finally approved, which was then forwarded to Rome, was a, a, um, a an honest uh, feeding back what we had heard. So I think that's been the process up yeah. till now. But some people find this idea that an official church document would simply reflect what people are saying mm. A bit of a challenge. They think, well, the church shouldn't just be reflecting what people are saying. It should be teaching or telling yes. people what to think. Yes. Well, I think the days of the church telling people what to think uh, are coming to an end, um, or at least uh, there's more to it than that, let me put yeah. it that way. Um, I think it's important to remember that we've still got a long way to go. I mean, we're only we're meeting now. So we're in the middle of a process, and I think it's really important to, to recall that, that it's a process. So, you know, we've had the national consultations all around the world. Now we're bringing to a close the continental stage where the various continental groupings of, uh, are meeting and, and uh, producing, uh, if you like, a summary document of what they've been hearing. But I suspect that that document might be uh, initiating kind of a further step in the process. So we've been listening uh, and I think faithful to what Pope Francis has asked of us, we've been trying to listen with open hearts and open ears and open minds to listen um, respectfully. And, and I've been saying to people also, not in a defensive way. So we're listening not to see whether or not people have understood the right things, but rather to listen to what is actually where people are at at the moment. Uh, I think that's been very important, certainly for the bishops, we know what our people think, but in another way, we might be kidding ourselves. And it's been very important that that the bishops certainly are, are genuinely listening, and as I say, listening respectfully and listening in a non-defensive way, because otherwise, how can we respond if we don't really understand the situation? I think myself that the challenge is always when you do these sort of consultation processes and you're listening to all kinds of voices and often they're um, reflecting very different points of view, sometimes even contradictory points of view. The challenge is to say, okay, how do we discern the work of the spirit, the voice of the spirit in this multiplicity of voices that we're hearing? That's, I think, the next stage. How are we now going as we listen and reflect on what we're hearing to detect the voice of the spirit? The first assembly of it might be dealing with that sort of issue? How do we now begin to hear the voice of the Spirit coming through all of these divergent voices? 
And then, of course, there will be another 12 months until the second uh, session of the Synod uh, for further reflection and further discernment. So I think this is very similar to our experience in Australia in the Plenary Council, Mm -hmm. that it is a process and each step along the way is a further step into a deeper discernment, and I think that's the way it's progressing. So So, um, do you think that the October Assembly, which you mentioned that won't be a time to sort of definitively rule on X, Y, Z, but to continue that listening? I think so, presuming that that could well be the case. And I think maybe as, as we listen, as we listen very carefully, questions will arise for us. You know, if we're trying to discern whether this is of the spirit and, uh, you know, whether this is, is a, a deepening of our understanding of the revelation God has made to us in Christ and then through the long story of the church. They're the sort of questions that will begin to emerge. Uh, I don't know that they will necessarily be resolved in the first assembly, but they might be the very things that then become the focus of the ongoing discernment after the first assembly. I suppose that is the frame with which all the, say, the contested topics which have come up, Mm. the questions around the role of women, LGBT questions, mm. that's how to understand those. Mm. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, whether or not there is a, a deepening of understanding going on through the listening process. Yes. Perhaps. My understanding of Pope Francis's ministry so far in the church uh, is precisely to invite the church to recognise these realities the question of women, for example, the LGBTQI plus question, but many other questions as well, and say, okay, how do we deal with these very pressing questions in the light of the Gospels and in the light of the ongoing presence of the Spirit throughout the 2,000 years of the Church's history, leading us deeper into an understanding of basically who we are as human beings, who God is, what the relationship between us is meant to be, those really fundamental questions. Um, I think Pope Francis is is wanting us to say, how do we do this in the contemporary world? Mm -hmm. So I think he's really inviting us to say, we've got all of these challenges, we've got all of these realities, uh, but we live in a world that's very different even from the world of the Second Vatican Council, for example. So how do we today... uh, in a creative way, remain faithful to what we've been given by God uh, and able to then share that with with people in a way that they can understand. I think that's the big challenge. And it does mean being open to possible developments. Mm, mm. Yes. Uh, I think, you know, Cardinal Newman and his whole approach to doctrinal development um, and the question of whether something is is truly a development or, or a distortion of what has gone before, a complete break with what's gone before, these are the sorts of issues that I think are going to have to be grappled with. And I think the fact that so far in the process they haven't yet been grappled with is what makes some people nervous. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere between now and the end of the Second Assembly, these issues will be further dealt with. You mentioned the Plenary Council uh, in Australia, which was a like a synod mm-hmm. process, but, mm-hmm. but not technically a synod. I was there to cover the... Uh, that the assembly in Sydney and saw the uh, what happened. It was a, a pretty important moment for the church mm. in Australia. How are things now 
um, several months on in terms of implementing mm. the vision of the Plenary Council? Yes. I'd say that we're in danger of losing a bit of um, impetus about it. We need the final approbation, I think is the word. I'm not sure of the okay. technical word. So we're waiting on that. And until we get that from Rome, we can't formally promulgate them. But you're I, going to Rome quite soon. So I am, and I, and I may be able to, to, to raise the issue. But I'm hoping it won't take too long because there is the danger that we'll lose the energy and the enthusiasm that was generated by the Plenary Council. Having said that, I, I don't have the decrees in front of me, so I can't remember them all in any detail, but I think there's very little in them that would cause any concern or any um, uh, worry in Rome. And many of them are things that we can begin to implement straight away. For example, in my own diocese in, in Perth, we're already planning for what we're calling a diocesan assembly later this year, uh, particularly to look at one of the... Uh, elements of one of the decrees, which was the establishment of the Diocesan Pastoral Council. We used to have one in the Archdiocese. Uh, it fell into um, abeyance, and uh, it's time to look at um, you know, starting it again. But what we want to do is discern what kind of Diocesan Pastoral Council does the church need at the moment. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the, the question. That's all coming out of the experience of the Plenary Council, the synodal process that we developed in that council and the, the, in my mind, I guess, the conviction or at least the, the thought in the minds of many that maybe we need a pastoral council that is a discerning body rather than just a kind of a dealing with particular issues and topics sort of body. So that's just one example. I think many of the dioceses in Australia are doing things like that. And a pastoral council, for those who may not know exactly what it is, it, it's a body of... of lay people and bishops mm. and priests who have a, a an input into how the, mm. the the diocese is led it is yeah exactly and um, you know it, it's it's something that provides the bishop with um, a group of committed um, competent if you like uh, people uh, interested in, in the church and committed to the church not necessarily all seeing everything in the same way, but nevertheless united by their desire to, to be a part of the church as it moves into the future. So it's all about the leadership, the governance, the pastoral direction of the diocese as a whole. At this stage, of course, because of canon law, and I'm not criticising that, but because of canon law, it will be a consultative body. But I think if, if, if we can learn from our experience of the Plenary Council and move to this more um, this, this discernment mode of decision-making um, because that's the thing that everybody who's spoken to me about the Plenary Council has said was the most uh, um, powerful experience. It was the experience of truly being together and listening carefully to each other. I think that's the way of the future. So for you as a bishop to have a council of competent people mm. to help discern mm. that's something that is um, an opportunity for you that, that, that's a bonus yes yes there, there does need to be a new way of of leadership um developing yes, in the church exactly well i think that is one of the key elements in pope francis's understanding of synodality pope francis is is often saying to us you know that the holy spirit speaks through everybody in the church so so 
if a bishop were to close himself off from his people or close himself off with just a little group of like-minded people who he knows are going to agree with him anyway, that's not a that's not a way of remaining open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It really does go back to Pope Francis's insistence on listening to each other and accompanying each other along the journey. I think that's really important. I was just reading this morning about uh, uh, his idea that a pastor, a shepherd, is sometimes at the front leading, sometimes in the middle encouraging, and sometimes at the back, you know, picking up the stragglers, as opposed to someone who's just up there telling everybody else what they have to do and demanding that they do it. So, yeah. Mm. And could these pastoral councils become more than just consultative bodies or become bodies that every diocese could have? Well, they certainly bodies every diocese should have, yeah. That was the recommendation of the Vatican Council, but it wasn't made mandatory. The Vatican Council, I think, uh, mandated diocesan finance councils and strongly recommended diocesan pastoral council. I would have to check whether I've got that yeah. right or not, but um, uh, but there was certainly a very strong push in the plenary council, which the bishops were very open to, that we look at this question again. Okay. So I don't think there's a great opposition to these kinds of things. Yes, and, and often it's not, not just structure, it's also the culture, it's the, the culture. style. Absolutely, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Recently, however, one of Archbishop Tim's compatriots, the late Cardinal George Pell, was revealed to have written an article where he attacked the Synod as a toxic nightmare and was very critical of Pope Francis for his approach to reform, saying that the papacy was a catastrophe. I wondered what Archbishop Tim thought about all of this. You mentioned that there uh, isn't huge opposition to, to things such as pastoral councils, but there does seem to be some opposition in the church to this synodal journey. And mm. I have to ask you about Cardinal Pell's interventions. If the listening is only going to be listening to those who agree with you, that's not going to carry the church forward at all. So um, I think every point of view needs to be listened to. But... <laughs> It really, I think it really goes back to what I was saying before. In listening to all of these voices, the challenge is to catch the voice of the Holy Spirit here. And, you know, as the scriptures say, the spirit blows where, where it wills. Um, we'd be very unwise to presume that those who disagree with us don't have any access to the, to the power of the spirit. For that, we have to have open hearts and open uh, open minds. Yes. Yes. It doesn't mean that you abandon what you believe. It does mean, though, that you listen respectfully to other people in case there is something in what they're saying that can deepen your own understanding of the issues. You know, Pope Francis is calling the whole church to model this approach to to our. our our life as a church, to our understanding of of uh, what God might be asking of us. For example, people who who seem to me to be fearful of the synod because they think that it's going to undo some of the solid uh, positions that the church has developed over the centuries. To listen to that fear and to recognise it for what it is and to respect it is an important part of, of the synodal journey. Mm. Presumably, you wouldn't agree with the idea that synod is a nightmare. 
I don't think it's a nightmare, no. I think it's a it's a fantastic opportunity for the church. I think it's it's full of promise for us because it's inviting us to um, to remember who it is who is at the heart of the church. And it's not me and my opinions or me and my certainties or anything like that. It's 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 Christ who is at the heart of the church. The Spirit guides the church. Now we can we can manage to block the work of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit always seems to be able to find a way uh, to lead us forward. So, I, I, I was talking to the young Salesians here last night, and and um, I was saying to them, you know, I, I'm I'm very hopeful. It's God's church in the end. It's not our church. It's God's church, and we should be confident that uh, God is is with us. And you've seen the opportunities that a synodal process can bring through the plenary council. Yes, yes, um, yes. It feels as if um, that when it comes to the synod, you, you, you kind of have to not, not just dip your toe in the water, you have to get into the pool and start swimming. Yes, 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 you, that's exactly right. I think it is a bit challenging at the start, but when you allow yourself to be drawn into the process, which is really allowing yourself to slow down a little bit, you know, one of the famous things that Pope Francis says is that, uh, I think I've got this right, time is greater than space. Yes. And I think what, what part of what he means by that at least is that some of these things take time. And, of course, people are very, many people want these resolved quickly and an answer to be provided straight away and things to change and to change rapidly. I think the discernment process is a process which is saying, no, we need to slow down. We need to uh, take a breath, so to speak. We need to be prepared. Um, and you, you've been involved not just in leading the Australian synodal process and plenary council, but you've also been involved in the universal global mm. synod. Um, do you think um, it's almost, well, I'll put it this way, is it very difficult to hear so many different voices from different parts of the world and bring them together into a coherent whole. I mean, how do you bring all those different voices to, together? And, and will the Synod perhaps lead to more diversity within the, the Catholic Church in terms of maybe different countries or regions having greater freedom to address particular mm. issues? I think that's one of the discerning questions we have to make. What, what is essential for the Church to be faithful to what it's called to be? Um, and within that, what room is there then for a variety of expressions of that and, and a variety of um, uh, approaches to be taken? So it's, 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 it's that fundamental question, you know, what, what is that without which we can't be the Church of Christ uh, and what is it? That's a big question. Yes. But that's, uh, in many ways, I think that is part of the question that the Synod is raising. Yes, and to hear those different voices, you, uh, that's the only way that you can perhaps respond to those. Things. I think so, yes, because if nothing else, it, it's an invitation. It, it enables us to recognise what the really um, major issues are in, in the minds and hearts of, 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 you know, of the people who are, belong to the church. It's, um, it's holding all of that together. Yes. That's the great challenge. One of the major concerns of Catholics, particularly those who go to Mass regularly, is the disconnect between the church, the institutional church, and young people. 
how can that be resolved? Repeatedly, people said in the Synod conversations that the church needed to adopt new ways, new methods to attract young people, to connect with them. Archbishop Tim had his own thoughts on this. Now, you're, you're the Archbishop of Perth mm. in Western Australia. You're also a Silesian. Mm. Um, and the charism of the Silesians, if I'm right, is uh, has traditionally been engagement with young people, yes. education. Mm. Um, do you see the Synod as helping to better engage young people in the, in the life of the church or in the, in the gospel? Because let's face it, in, in, in Western Europe mm. and in the West generally, Mm. This is a big it's a massive issue. Yeah, it's a massive issue. It's very interesting that in the documentation that came through from the national consultations around the world, this question of the, well, young people in the church was a major, major concern. There was one submissions that I, and they, they suggested perhaps the time has come for the Catholic Church to make a preferential option for the young. And I thought that was a very insightful comment uh, and if that were to be picked up by the Synod and explored a little bit uh, and questions raised about if we were to, to make a prefer preferential option for the young, what would that look like in practice in Australia or here in the UK or in parts of Africa or wherever? What would that actually look like? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, yeah, and given that we do have this disconnect, it seems, mm. between the younger generations yes. and the church. That's something that you can see um, across society, disconnect between generations. Mm. Mm. It's obviously something that has mm. to be addressed. Mm. Um, it's a big challenge for us, and I, I think one of the one of the challenges for us is to, is to almost shift our understanding because Catholicism, in my experience, um, runs the risk sometimes of being understood as a religion of rules and regulations. Uh, and there are rules and regulations in the church and, and, and we need to have them. But they'll make no sense to anybody unless there's a, a, a spirituality behind them. If they're just rules you have to follow, um, that's not going to appeal to many young people or to people generally, I don't think, anymore. Yes. So I think it, it, it points us to the fact that, and look, I'm just repeating what Pope Francis says, what Pope Benedict used to say, what John Paul II said in Novo Millennio in Neonte. It's easy to say these things. How we actually do that for young people is a big challenge. How do we help people understand that, that being religious, um, being a Catholic, is about relationship it's 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 our faith is a faith of relationships before it's anything else first of all the relationship with god relationship with christ and in that that colors all our relationships with everybody else yes but um getting that message across because you have to experience it you know i, I don't think you 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 can't just convince someone intellectually that that's the case there's got yes. to be more to it than that um the other thing that the Synod has emerged from is that is the sex abuse crisis mm. that is still impacting churches. Mm. 
Um, how, how do you think the synod process can can help respond to the the the, the tragedy, the wounds, the scandals? Mm. This? Well, the, the first thing I I would say is that if we were to become a synodal church, a listening church, a church that accompanies an approach that might enable us, first of all, to accompany those people who have been so badly hurt by their contact with the church. That's very difficult because, you know, my experience is that many people who have been so badly hurt by the church really want nothing to do with the church anymore. And there are other people who would who would experience a, a need to re-engage, but the, the, their experience of the church makes that re-engagement very difficult. So it's going to require a great deal of pastoral sensitivity and a great deal of, you know, genuinely listening to people's experience. Um, so there's that. The other side of this, of course, is that we have to... Well, two things I'd say. One is we just have to keep working at making sure that we have that our church life, the day-to-day life of our parishes and our schools and those sorts of things, is um, conducted very much with what the people in my diocese would call our safeguarding hat on all the time. We have to make sure that, unlike in the past, Catholic places, Catholic communities, Catholic parishes, Catholic schools, Catholic uh, institutions of any kind are the safest places for young people. Mm. And that wasn't the case in the past. Pope Francis is marking 10 years Mm. since his election as Bishop of Rome. How has this pontificate impacted you? And how do you reflect on 10 years of of Francis? I think this is, this is how I understand the gift of Pope Francis to the church, that we've had Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II too uh, who have helped us to understand Jesus as the veritas, as the truth. Pope Francis, I think, is inviting us to understand um, Jesus also as the way. And by that I mean and that if we're going to be faithful to to Christ, we have to be faithful to what I would call his pastoral methodology. Um, and so certainly for anybody who has leadership in the church or anybody who has any kind of ministry in the church, we have to model ourselves on the, what I've just called the pastoral methodology of Jesus. And, and at, at its heart, the pastoral methodology of Jesus is to meet a person where they are and respond to them where they are with openness and with uh, warmth and with um, generosity uh, and hospitality and then hopefully accompany them along along a journey. I think, that's, I think that that's Pope Francis's gift to us, that he's telling us or reminding us or, or asking us to make Jesus our model in terms of the way we encounter people. And I think certainly for priests and therefore also for bishops, that's, that's, that's a key to Pope Francis. If you think about Jesus meeting, you know, Zacchaeus up in the tree, he doesn't tell him what a terrible sinner he is or how he's got to turn his life around. He just says, I'm coming to your place tonight. And 
through that encounter, Zacchaeus realizes I've got to change my life. So this this shows us the uh, pastoral methodology of Jesus, which is adapted to the particular reality of each person he meets. Yes, I think that's what Pope Francis is inviting us to. Uh, he's witnessing to that and witnessing to it, and so he's not contradicting uh, Jesus the truth. He's saying. We have that in place, or we must have that in place. We also have to equally as importantly have in place Jesus as our way. Yes. And I think that's, as I reflect on it, that's the secret of Pope Francis. But we also know that Jesus scandalised and faced opposition from the the doctors of the law Absolutely. and the religious authority. Absolutely. And in many ways, Francis has also faced... It's a, it's a good parallel, isn't it? Yes. And the other thing that's interesting is the only people Jesus speaks harshly to are the religious leaders. They're the only ones that sort of feel that they get a tongue lashing from Jesus, you know, you brood of vipers and you whited sepulchres and all of that sort of stuff. It's only the religious leaders. But of course, How do you reflect on the, the opposition that Francis has? Because although it's not, it's not coming from the ordinary believer or the mm. people of God, it's coming mm. from those in some powerful positions, mm. particularly in the English-speaking world. Mm. Well, I, I th- look, I, I find it quite distressing, but I'd also say that uh, it's... Um, Pope Francis, he's... he's He's very sure, I think, that what he's calling the church to is is God's will for the church. So he's strong from that point of view. Uh, I, th- I, I suspect that it hurts him more than he lets on, that he gets this constant barrage of criticism from some people. It's not deterring him from, from doing what he believes. But I think if people could just listen to what he's saying and inviting us to and not see it as a threat but as an invitation, uh, I think things might change. I, I probably wouldn't want to say more than that yeah, about it, yeah. but I, I, I think um, he represents a, a, a real challenge for the church, I think, but also a tremendous opportunity yes. for the church. And perhaps some of the opposition he's faced shows he's going in the right direction. Possibly, yes. <laughs> that's, okay. That could well be the case, yes. yes. Well... Archbishop Tim, thank you very much for, for joining me for this discussion. It was fascinating to hear your your views. And, thank uh, you, Chris. Always good to speak to you. Okay, thank you. This podcast series is sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.